Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Ben Fountain, whose latest book is Beautiful Country, Burn Again, Democracy, Rebellion, and Revolution. Ben Fountain is the author of two other books, Brief Encounters with Che Guevara, which is a collection of stories, and Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, a novel. This particular book deals with the 2016 presidential campaign. This is a collection of essays interspersed with something you call the Book of Days, which is kind of a monthly history of the year. So let's go back a little bit. What's the origins of the essays and the book itself? The Guardian approached me in November of 2015 and asked if I wanted to do a series of pieces on the upcoming election. Like a lot of people, by then, I was in a state of confusion, bewilderment, anger, frustration, not understanding you know, what was going on in my country with the candidacy of Donald Trump and how strong he was doing. I felt like we were heading into uncharted waters. And so when this offer came, I jumped on it. I felt like, okay, this gives me a chance to go at this in a systematic, rigorous way. You know, not too long into 2016, I thought, well, this could be a book because there's a lot to explore here. I feel like I'm just scratching the surface with these pieces, but there's a lot to understand, a lot to unpack in what was going on, and that was certainly borne out over the course of the year. I wanted to try to convey what I could of the experience of that year, what living through that year was like, and it was a crazy year. And so... I was trying to figure out, I mean, we forget, we forget really quickly, the country kind of lost its mind. And so I thought, how do I capture, you know, the nature of that year without getting us bogged down in recent history? And I thought, well, I'll just, I call them tequila shots. You know, these these short mini chapters between the real chapters where I'm just shotgunning a whole list of things that were happening in that particular month. And For me, it gives some context to what's being explored in the essays. What I noticed was that it seemed almost as if you were being prescient in the early chapters, but you were able to revise them a little afterward. These aren't exactly as they appeared in The Guardian, or are they? The Iowa section is entirely new, and I was taking that from my notes and things I'd fleshed out. Probably 70% of the book is new. There's a lot of new essays in there, and the essays that were published in The Guardian, probably half of those were revised heavily. A lot happened that year. We aren't anywhere near getting a grip on what happened that year. When you go back and look at those original essays before you began the reworking, how accurate were you in either predicting the future or in what your own perception would be after the fact? You know, I wasn't so much trying to predict the future as understand the present 
in the past. I felt like by fall of 2015, Trump had a 50-50 chance because, I mean, he had done things that would have utterly destroyed any conventional candidate. And not only was he still surviving, he was leading the pack. On the one hand, I felt like he was leading us into uncharted waters. But on the other hand, I had the intuition that he is the logical culmination of certain strands and veins in American history and culture and politics. And if those are allowed to come to full fruition, then someone like Trump results. So I was trying to you know, dig down into that instinct to see what I found. In an interview you did with Rolling Stone, uh, you said that two things were going on. We were entering uncharted waters, and yet at the same time, there was something awfully predictable about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Trump is an American product. He is an entirely American creature. But up until that point in our history, those kinds of tendencies and psychoses, you know, they were confined to the fringe. But certainly more and more the last 10 or 15 years, the fringe has gone mainstream. And he's the ultimate expression of that. You don't really go into too much depth in these essays about the media's responsibility, except in a secondary way. But it it seemed to me that the media failed us, not just the corporate media, but even places that are alternative media seem to be focused on the trees, not the forest. Yeah. Well, there is an essay in there called Two American Dreams, where I talk about the fantasy industrial complex and the role that played in Trump's rise in election. This is the age of big corporate media and ratings and ad revenue. That's what drives those companies. There are a lot of great journalists working there, but um, there are certain constraints they work under. You know, I think we were all operating in 2016, many of us, under the good faith impression that facts still mattered, you know, ultimately. And you could feel this kind of morbid countdown going in the press leading up to the Iowa caucuses. Like, with six weeks to go, Trump is still leading the field, and three weeks to go, and and two weeks, and 10 days, and, and mere days away, Trump's still leading the field. It was like everybody was waiting for gravity to kick back in and for this guy to crash and burn because that's what any rational analysis of the situation would point to. But um, this very strange phenomenon was going on. It's like Trump put the country under a kind of spell, and we're still under that spell. I interviewed Gary Steingart, who's a novelist, not too long ago, and his book deals with a character taking a road trip in June 2016, and it's the road trip Gary took. And he said he woke up on that road trip because everybody, once you're outside of the uh, coasts, Mm -hmm. he said there were these Trump supporters, and he was in a state of shock about it. Yeah. Trump spoke to something very powerful in a big swath of America, and that is the system is rigged. And that's a true statement. The system is rigged. He was speaking a powerful, authentic truth with that statement, and people responded. Finally, here was somebody just saying right out loud, yeah, you've been screwed. You know, the analysis faltered after that. Was he offering anything real that would unscrew them and unrig the system? And, and even the most basic analysis would indicate, no, he ain't offering anything real to you. If you just look at his position on the minimum wage, I mean, there's nothing there for working people. So he was speaking a powerful truth, but he was using it in the service of a con. 
What became clear in reading Beautiful Country Burn Again, Ben Fountain, is that Hillary Clinton, in her way, was likely the absolute worst candidate to go up against him simply because she represented everything that had gone wrong. Yeah, she and Bill Clinton were prime movers in creating the system that has screwed working people in this country for the last 35 years. And not only were they prime movers, they've been prime beneficiaries of it, not only in terms of their careers, but in the money they've made and the lifestyle they're able to live. You know, both Clintons did very fine things during their career. But what weighs very heavily against those fine things is the main thing, and that is they were perpetrators and beneficiaries of a system that has worked very much to the detriment of working people in this country. As you go into the history a little bit of the New Deal and its relationship to what you call the New Democrats, then in fact all Bernie Sanders and the quote Democratic Socialists are doing is they're just going back to the New Deal. That's absolutely true. Absolutely true. These days, Eisenhower would be viewed as a raving liberal. Because you look at what he did. I mean, he pushed back against the military-industrial complex. He expanded Social Security. He inaugurated the interstate highway system. And he was very much in favor of collective bargaining in unions. This country, we have lost a sense of our recent history and the fact that it is the air we breathe. The New Deal was so successful, it became invisible. And you look at the results of the deconstruction of the New Deal society across the board, banking and finance regulation, just to take one example, the United States had no major financial upheavals for 50 years, from 1935 to 1985. But as soon as we took apart one aspect of that regulatory system on savings and loans, immediately the savings and loan industry blew up. And so since then, we've had you know two existential crises in American finance. And it's because we have been gradually deconstructing the regulatory framework that the New Deal put in place. I guess you'd call it the myth of what happened to the Democrats. And I recall those years in the 70s and 80s was that after George McGovern and putting aside Jimmy Carter for a moment, but after McGovern, the entire impetus had to shift because he got creamed. And then, as you mentioned in the book, Walter Mondale got creamed as well. And that brought into power the so-called New Democrats, people like Clinton, the uh, Democratic Leadership Council. But behind that also was the fact that somewhere along the line, unions no longer represented the working people as they had. And without that money coming in, The Democrats had to do something, and the only place to turn to was the corporate world. That's what we were told. The Democrats had to come up with something new. The obliteration of McGovern and Mondale, you know, showed that. But instead of figuring out innovative ways to serve the traditional Democratic constituency, which is immigrants, poor people, working class, middle class, the New Democrats went the easy route and went the corporate route and bought the Chicago School of Economics line, you know, supply-side economics and free market absolutism. And, And there were voices in the Democratic Party calling for a much more populist 
approach. Jerry Brown was one and Jesse Jackson. They were arguing for a new kind of compelling democratic politics that would serve those traditional constituencies. But um, the democratic establishment went corporate. And I think it was the easy thing to do. And certainly from an individual standpoint, the careers of the particular politicians who went that route, it served them very well. In other words, what I just blathered to you, that's a myth and a rationalization because that permeated the media. Media bought it. Yeah. It was as if the Democratic Party had two alternatives, either go neoliberal and sell out their traditional constituencies or continue to be obliterated. Come on. You know, there were plenty of people with brains in the Democratic Party arguing for something else, but it was going to take a remodeling, a reinvention of the Democratic Party to speak to, you know, the new challenges of late-stage corporate capitalism. The next stage of that was also the fact that the Democrats abandoned the states themselves. And those of us watching was going, what the hell is going on? To a point now where, as Nancy McLean has noted, we're just a couple of states away from a constitutional convention run by the Kochs. Yeah, which is terrifying. It's morally unconscionable and it was politically stupid for the Democratic establishment to essentially triage a huge swath of the country. You're doing a great disservice to working people in those states in addition to like shooting yourself in the foot politically. Politics is one of the areas in life where you can win even when you lose. There are battles worth fighting and losing. And so, okay, if you are a Democratic operative in Nebraska, it is worthwhile to go to the mats every election because what you're doing, if you're doing it right, you're educating people, you're raising awareness, you are showing them that there is a different way, and you are laying the groundwork for better things to happen in the future. So I just think the Democratic Party leadership made a huge mistake and also a morally indefensible move. But some people got very rich. Yeah, very rich. Neoliberalism is a term I've heard a lot, and I've heard at least a dozen different definitions with other people saying, oh, no, that's not the definition. You give a definition which, strictly speaking, I haven't heard before, but it seems to be what's really going on, which is basically social justice, the social issues, coupled with highly profitable corporate sector capitalism. Mm -hmm. That means that, as Gore Vidal said, we have one political party with two right wings. Yeah, Gore Vidal was right. I think the basic shift in this country was this, and it happened with Reagan's election. Until that point, the general consensus was representative government is the true and rightful arbiter of the direction this society should be going. It is the best means of determining what's just and fair and right and also advantageous for society at large. Starting in the 80s, the shift was to the free market is the rightful arbiter. And markets, infallible markets, they show us what's right and true and just and advantageous for society. And I think in economic terms, the Democrats, establishment Democrats, very much bought into that line. So the shackles came off the free market. When Clinton ran in 92, that was the first time in over 100 years that the Democratic Party platform 
did not include an anti-monopoly plank. So in other words, we are going to give free market capitalism, we are going to deregulate and let the market do its magic. And so, you know, this many years later, we see what the results are. And the result from the Democrats is that when the ideas were not working, they just hired more consultants and thought that a better slogan would somehow put them over the edge. Yeah, I call it the election industrial complex. I mean, somebody like David Brock and his organization, they'll get $75 million an election cycle to do oppo research and advertising on whoever's opposing the Democrats. But the Democratic Party in Nebraska will get $7,500 a month from the National Party. That's not how you build a political party or a movement in the country. And another thing the Democrats have done the last 35 years is to muddy the distinctions. Because in fact, at least in terms of economics, the distinctions have gotten less and less. And the Democratic Party has offered less and less to working people. If people are going to vote, you got to give them a compelling reason to come out. You know, the true political experts in this country, the true savants, the really savvy players, are the ones who looked around and said, this politics has got nothing for me. I mean, why should I go out and vote? If Democrats are in power, things still get worse. If Republicans are in power, they get worse a little faster. So I'm just not seeing an alternative for myself. And that's why people like Thomas Frank or Chris Hedges have been able to predict what we're seeing now. Yeah. Because it was yeah. pretty obvious, to them at least. To them. But the mainstream media, MSNBC, still says, oh, it's the Russians. Let's talk about that a minute. Whatever the Russians did in terms of bots and messaging, in the last analysis, I haven't seen anything that indicates that Russians got into the actual ballot boxes or that it was Russian bots pulling the levers for Trump. It was Americans who voted for Trump, and it was Americans who elected Trump under the American system. And so whatever it is that elected Trump, it's in us. And if we are going to get to a better place, we need to be taking a good, hard look at ourselves, our collective psyche and our history and our culture. What I found, Ben Fountain, was that we're fighting not merely the Republicans, but we're fighting the Democratic establishment, which we see still in this election. Even in my assembly district, we have a Democrat who was brought in by, I guess, the state to run for assembly. She worked for Obama. She talks about incrementalism, and she's opposed by a Bernie Sanders supporter. So it's still going on. They're pushing these people. I was receiving flyers from her on a daily basis, which, of course, to me raises a red flag, but maybe not to others. Well, yeah, we're very much in the middle of that struggle, and the outcome remains to be seen. I do think it's extremely hopeful that there is now a progressive truly liberal wing of the Democratic Party to start giving people a real choice. I mean, Beto O'Rourke in my home state, he's running the right kind of campaign. He's not taking PAC money, and he's sharpening the distinctions between himself and Cruz. But, you know, anybody who thinks the Democratic Party has been successful with its strategy the last 35 years, you know, has really got rocks in their heads. Democrats, they've lost Congress. They've lost state legislatures. They've lost governorships. They 
don't have the White House, and now we're losing the judiciary. So people, you know, wake up, take a good look around, and try to figure out how the hell this happened. Well, part of it, I think, you know, from my perspective, and I can curious about your response to this. Uh, two interviews I did. One was during 2016 with Anna Quinlan, who was in tight with the Washington people. She dismissed Bernie Sanders as, oh, it's just the idealist students. That was one. The second came from one of the co-authors of Shattered, the book about Hillary Clinton, when I said to him that virtually all the Clinton supporters, people I knew who were voting for Clinton, they all like Sanders platform better. And he said, oh, no, that can't be true. That's not true. And he just dismissed it. Yeah. These are the Washington people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look at the result. The political class, thinking class, they need to get out more. That's all I can say. I'd like to switch gears for a second, talk about your career. You're more or less what they call a late bloomer here. Your first book was a collection of short stories, took place in various different areas. Had you traveled to all of those areas? No. I'd been to Haiti quite a bit by then. So about half the stories take place in Haiti, and then other stories take place in Burma, now known as Myanmar, Sierra Leone, Colombia. My wife would not allow me to go to those places. We had two small children at the time, and she said, you aren't going to go get yourself killed. So I'll give you a kitchen pass to Haiti, but... You just have to do the hard work and imagine yourself into these other places. 1988, according to Wikipedia, is when you became a full-time writer. What were you writing? Were you writing essays for various magazines at that point? No, I I, um, quit practicing law and became a house husband, and I wanted to write fiction. I mean, that was just what was in my heart. I wrote short stories for a few years and then started a novel set in Haiti. I mean, every once in a while, I would get a short story published in a small, obscure magazine. I finished that novel. It took me the better part of five years and got an agent but didn't sell it. Eventually, the agent fired me. By then, I was 10 years into this writing project, and I had to decide why I was doing it. Was I doing it, you know, out of this genuine desire to write something worthwhile, or was I doing it for more transient illusory, shallower things. And at that point, I decided, well, I'm writing because I really want to write something worthwhile and try to figure out something about human experience. So I got very zen about failure and success and just said, I'll just keep writing. I don't know if I'll ever get a book out. I'll just keep writing. The stories had a political tinge to them as well. So that was always in your DNA. Yeah. Yeah, very much. I think on some level, that's what all writers who are truly trying to figure something out, on some level, they're writing about justice. They are writing about our shared humanity or lack of. And it is a work of imagination to appreciate another human being's humanity. I think ultimately that's what writers are doing. They are trying to come to terms with the fact that we have our own reality And then there are all these other realities out there. We are social creatures. And so there will always be tension and conflict between our reality and the realities of the people around us. And what is going to come out of that? Will it be destructive or constructive? During those years, were you doing any writing workshops, groups, anything like that, or just on your own? It was on my own. I mean, I live in North Dallas. 
there weren't too many writers there. So I was trying to figure it out for myself, looking back on it. I think that if perhaps I'd looked into, you know, doing an MFA program or some more workshops, if it had been the right program, the right people, it could have probably saved me a lot of years. Did you spend any time hanging out with people like Ann Richards or Molly Ivins? No, sadly. I was just this obscure, unknown, barely published writer in North Dallas who was running the kids around to their practices and uh, going to PTA meetings when I wasn't writing. So I, I, was, I was a bum. What prompted you to start Billy Ling's Long Halftime Walk? The state of the country in 2004. Bush had been elected. Some people say he was reelected, but really he was elected in 2004. But his election in 2004, long after it had become apparent that these wars had been started under false pretenses, the fact that the country was willing to endorse that course of action when the truth was right out there for anyone to see, I realized I don't understand my country. And I had to find a way into exploring what exactly is going on in America and who we are and why these things are happening. And and so it was a Dallas Cowboys halftime show where um, I saw some soldiers trotted out as props. And I thought, okay, maybe that's a way to get into it. What kind of research did you do? I was working on other things. So for five years, I didn't try to write Billy Lynn. But my default reading was always about these wars and about soldiers. I talked to every soldier who was willing to talk to me. And, you know, when you do this kind of work, you realize after a while that when you undertake a project like this, things start to surface that you had forgotten or you didn't know you, you knew. And I grew up in North Carolina where there's a lot of military, and I realized I've known veterans of American wars going back to World War I. And so those stories and those encounters, you know, began to surface. So in a way, it was I'd been preparing my whole life to write that book. Were you also at that point beginning to sell essays? No, I was all fiction. Every once in a while, um, I would do a nonfiction piece. I mean, Richard, I'm such a slow writer and such a slow learner that um, I can't spin off in too many directions at once or I'll never get anywhere. So it was only after um, Billy Lynn came out that I started getting offers to do some commentary and, and some nonfiction. How did Billy Lynn get published? I mean, here you were sending stuff out. Did you have an agent at that point? Yeah, I'd gotten an agent, a really good agent for Brief Encounters. With Brief Encounters, I had a great publisher, Echo, and a great editor, Lee Boudreau. And the table was set for Billy Lynn if I could deliver. And it took you a long time to deliver. Man, I, you know, I'm a slow learner. What can I, if you want to say Ben Fountain's kind of stupid, it's like guilty as charged. Well, you sent it out, and your editor said, wow, great, at that point? Yeah, there was some pushback in the beginning by 2009 when I started writing it. The feeling was, well, these wars are old news. People are kind of fatigued about reading. It's like, can't you think of something else? It was a powerful thing in me to try to write this book, and I would not have any peace in myself if I didn't try to write it. And so I said, no, this is what I'm writing. Ultimately, it came out in 2012. And who would have thought in 2009 or 2012 that we would still be in these frigging wars in 2018? The book itself became a bestseller. Yeah, we had some nice success with it. <laughs> and then Ang Lee decided to make a film of it. He did. I came away from that experience 
thinking a great deal of Ang Lee. I think he's a real artist. He was trying for something, you know, completely out of the box with this movie. It was a real challenge. I think the movie, you know, definitely has its moments, but it was a difficult thing to pull off. You like the film. You like what they did with it, but it got dumped. Hollywood is a strange and mysterious place, and I don't pretend to understand it or even try to understand it. A lot of stuff goes into making a movie and releasing a movie, and I feel like, you know, it was just too revolutionary for its time. It's available on Stars right now if people want to check it out. Yeah, but, you know, Ang shot it in this very high frame rate, 120 frames per second in extremely high HD, and so it's very rare that you're able to see the movie as he intended for it to be seen. It would have to be seen in the theater then. A specially equipped theater with really? um, a projector that, or whatever the lingo is, that could handle that high frame rate. And also he shot it in 3D. So he was doing all kinds of things that nobody had done before. And uh, it was ex- an extremely honorable effort. And in, in many ways it succeeded, but I don't think the culture was ready for what he was going for. Well, sometimes when that happens, people rediscover down the road. So there's always a shot, particularly since it's Ang Lee. Yeah, and I hope so, because Ang deserves it. I mean, he was a real visionary in this. And again, he was going for something nobody had tried before. So hats off to him. After Billy Lynn came out, did The Guardian approach you? Did someone approach you about doing an essay? The Guardian editor who I worked with is David Taylor. He was head of the U.S. News Operation in 2015. And he had read Billy Lynn and reviewed it and interviewed me. He liked it. He was looking, I think, for the Billy Lynn approach to 2016 and, you know, maybe what that could reveal about the country. Uh, In one of the interviews I read, um, someone asked you about using fictional language in nonfiction. But of course, you're a writer. That's what you do. Yeah, I mean, the most effective writing is not information, but it amounts to an experience. And, you know, many of us, many of the people listening to this show, they've had the experience in their life of reading a book or seeing a movie, and they walk out of there a changed person. It is an experience as opposed to this passive, you know, reception of information. And and so I was bringing my fiction chops to nonfiction. I wanted to try to make it. I wanted to try to give it all the immediacy and intensity of an experience. And we have a great language, the American language, so why not use everything it can do? It's not as if this is anything new. People like Norman Mailer, Joan Didion, certainly, as you mentioned in Beautiful Country Burn Again, Hunter Thompson. Yeah, I've had great predecessors going this route, and they have revealed profound things by their use, their extremely nuanced, powerful, insightful use of language. And language is still the best medium we've, we have for trying to understand our, our experience. So use it. You, in the course of the book, recommend certain books for people to read. One of them, Richard Hofstetter. Uh, can you go into that a little bit? Yeah. Richard Hofstetter was a, a very fine political scientist, and he was active like from 1940s into the 
early 1970s, and he died prematurely. But he wrote a seminal book called The Paranoid Style in American Politics, where he diagnoses this basic psychopathy in not just American politics, but the American character. And so I looked to him quite a bit for guidance and and as a way to try to understand what what was happening in 2016. I think he's one of the masters. And essays like The Paranoid Style in American Politics and The Pseudo-Conservative in American Politics, where he diagnoses Barry Goldwater, they were really helpful for me in trying to get a grip on our time. Uh, There's some mention of a precursor to Donald Trump named Pappy O'Daniel. And I had never heard of him. Did you hear of him in Texas, or did that come from one of the books? He's a legend in Texas. He was a flower salesman. In the early 1930s, he had a radio show that became wildly popular. And he was the first media celebrity in the Southwest. He was made for the radio and vice versa. And he used that celebrity to run for governor, get elected, run for governor again, get elected, and then run in a special election for the U.S. Senate against a young congressman named Lyndon Johnson, and he won. And he was offering nothing to the working people of the state except a really good line of bull hockey. Actually, he was very much serving the corporate interest, but he spoke to people's fears and anxieties and aspirations in this very effective way, and he used the media of his time at least as effectively as Trump uses Twitter in our age. So you can look at someone like that and figure that if it wasn't Trump, it would be someone else. Yeah, I think so. Although I have to say Trump is a particularly, you could not design a better personality, a better figure for our age, I think. The age of politics as entertainment, the age of politics as being delivered through mass media. Trump has been a, a honest-to-God celebrity in American culture since the late 1970s, early 1980s, and reached its pinnacle with The Apprentice and The Celebrity Apprentice, and he's a master at it. And it never quite worked in New York because people had to deal with him, but outside New York, it was extremely effective. Yeah. I think what Donald Trump did in 2016 has a lot more to do with art than politics. It's drama, emotion, conflict, playing a role. All of politics is performance. And we have gotten used used to, in this country, a certain kind of performance, modulated, reasonable. And he took the performance to a different level where his performance, you know, these outrageous things he said and did were taking as markers of authenticity that put the lie to the usual performance. And people responded to that. And it's only continued. I mean, it it never stopped. My suspicion is it's the only thing he knows. Yeah, but why should he learn anything else? He's really good at it. He is the culmination of the Roger Ailes style of American politics. Ailes recognized early what television was going to do to American politics. And he saw that politicians of the future were going to have to be performers. And he said that. And uh, he said... They are going to have to play to the TV just like daytime TV plays to the American people. 
you got to have conflict, emotion, drama all the time because that's what keeps people glued to the TV. And so you see Trump practicing that every day of his presidency. It's always something new. It's always something outrageous. There is always, you know, conflict, chaos, high emotion. This is the world's most insane soap opera. And in that sense, you know, we always thought about Reagan as the first great, in quotes, personality, you know, celebrity mm-hmm. personality to, to be successful. But he didn't use those. He, he didn't use that method. This is a different method. Yeah, it's, it's a, a method for our times. It's almost like um, uh, dopamine resistance. You have to have a bigger and bigger charge to get that rush of dopamine. Reagan these days would probably be too modulated, too reasonable, too avuncular to hold our attention for very long. I think, in a way, the entire culture is going the way of pro wrestling, and Trump is a master of that. Then that brings up the the notion that social media and the ADD universe that's been created out of social media plays right into this. Yeah. And so what do we do to, to resist? How do we find our way back into trying to apprehend our reality and make sense of it? My radical proposal for the country is go to the library, check out a couple of books on history, sociology, fiction, poetry. And I'm not saying that books are infallible, but what I am saying is they allow us human space. A book gives us time and space to absorb, process, contemplate, think, whereas you know these compulsion sh- machines that run our lives, our computers and our cell phones and TVs, I mean, that is the opposite of contemplation and patient understanding. It's, it's, it's always urging us to move on to the next thing. And so I think it takes an act of will to inform ourselves of our reality these days. Is it possible that society as a whole at some point could just get tired of the constant stress? Is that possible? I think it is. I keep waiting for a youth movement to come about in this country where a critical mass of young people say, we're going offline. We're putting away our electronics. We're going back to the book. We're going back to -to face-to-face conversation. Where we've gone the last 25, 30 years is just making us miserable. That's my dream. (laughs) After finishing a book like Beautiful Country, Burn Again, on the other side of it, did you take away anything new from just having gone through those essays and rewritten them? Is there anything that you walked away from going, ah. One conclusion was America is a mentally disturbed country. It is mentally ill. I think the mental illness has as its source racism in America. And the fact that Jamestown was founded in 1607, within 12 years, the first consignment of people held in bondage was delivered to Jamestown. And ever since then, there has been a split in the American psyche where we hold ourselves out to be a Christian just nation, and yet there is this abominable sin on our hands. And add to that genocide of Native Americans. This is a country that has done many fine and wonderful things, and it has done 
many destructive, egregiously sinful things until we start taking a good hard look at ourselves and our history. I think we're going to continue to be mentally ill. The other thing is America is various. This country ceaselessly surprises us. And I was impressed by that all over again by going back into history and our culture and and just seeing just the diversity and, and the breadth of experience and the brilliant people who have articulated that experience and worked very hard to to make the country true to the founding words of, you know, all men are created equal and everyone has the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, I think you could put the core story of American history right there in the struggle to fulfill those words and the reaction against fulfilling those words. Ben Fountain, have you begun work on another novel, collection of short stories, more essays? I went on a short story streak this summer. It felt really good. And uh, I've got a novel in progress, again, about Haiti. I laid that aside to do Beautiful Country Burn Again, so I will pick that up at some point. But uh, I'm very much looking forward to getting back to fiction. Facts, you have to stay true to facts, and that's hard. On the other hand, after reading Beautiful Country Burn Again, I don't want you to leave the essay. Thank you. I expect I will drift back to it. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>